In the 60s and into the 70s, there was an explosion in the British pop music business as the Beatles broke up and bands such as the Rolling Stones, The Who, Led Zeppelin and many others rose to prominence. It was the start of a cultural revolution that continued over the next few decades. Live music audiences got more demanding and wanted to see concerts that were dramatic and spectacular. This is the story of how, as the music industry evolved, artists and bands took to the road to tour the UK, Europe and America to satisfy those demands, as told by some of the people that made it happen. The worlds of theatre and television collided, and in the vanguard was a small group of people in a London company that helped pioneer rock and roll lighting and visual production. Welcome to your very own Backstage Pass. In the last episode, we heard how the crew on the Frank Sinatra concert at the Royal Albert Hall in London had narrowly escaped disaster, having blown up the lighting control board. That was in 1975. John Brown was one of the founders of ESP Lighting, and he had a similar experience. In 1973, uh, I joined The Who uh, as a lighting designer for the 1973 American tour. And during that tour, we used a very sophisticated, or at the time, very sophisticated lighting console that McManus Lighting in Philadelphia had designed and built for Jethro Tull. We rented it from Jethro Tull for the Who tour. And I was impressed with that board, as were Roger and Tony, the Who's own lighting people. And we ordered one up at a cost at that time of $10,000, I remember getting uh, the authorization from a, from the Who's lawyer in New York, and the board arrived in Europe in time for the 1974 Who tour of France. We did a mini tour of France, which included two dates in Paris at uh, one of the major sports stadiums with a very large audience, and we did a warm up the night before in a small town called Combray, which. Uh, you tend to drive through if you're going from Calais to anywhere in France. One of the problems that we discovered in the early days was that European electrical system, of course, was different from the UK one. Basically, in the UK, you have 415 when you get two phases, and in France, you get 380. So the connections can be a little bit more complicated. And on that warm-up gig, I managed to get the wires confused because I wasn't Roy Lamb, who had an intuitive feel for knowing how to connect the mains, and managed to blow up the $10,000 board before it was ever used. I rather shamefacedly had to go and tell Pete and Roger that the $10,000 they had invested and the very fancy lighting that had been installed at the back of the stage for the Paris shows wasn't going to be operative.
Luckily for John, the band took it quite well, because The Who had a certain reputation, and sometimes things could get quite tense. As in rehearsals at Shepperton Film Studios, just outside London, for The Who's 1973 Tour of America. And I was new to The Who, wasn't a very welcome new member of the crew because they had to, Roger and Roger Searle and Tony Haslam were already doing their lighting. But as I'd said earlier, I was drafted in to help out with lighting Quadrophenia, which was going to be premiered in that 1973 talk. Obviously, this was very much Pete's masterwork. Uh, and, and there were a lot of disagreements between he and Roger over it at that time. And at one time, the I mean, he got so incensed and, and Roger got so annoyed that he punched Pete out and knocked him unconscious. Not an entirely new experience, I got the impression. That, that, you know, that over the years between the four members there had been issues like this. It was exciting to watch, but the rest of the crew, the old crew, they sort of shrugged and carried on. When we played the Spectrum in Philadelphia and Tony Haslam and I happened to be in the green room, probably getting a drink before the show because we uh, occasionally did that. Pete and Roger had round two and Tony Haslam and I had to hide under a table to keep out of their way as they sorted out their differences. It wasn't just for his own personal safety that John stopped going on the road, as he needed to be behind his desk at the end of a telephone. As ESP Lighting's reputation grew, John spent an increasing amount of time negotiating with band managements and the client list grew ranging from The Who to doing some of the first shows at the old Wembley Football Stadium in London to ABBA, The Carpenters, Elton John, The Eagles, the almost ever-present Rolling Stones, the list goes on and on. Brian Croft takes up the story. Pop music business was really exploding within a very short period of time. It was clear that what the punters wanted was not to just have Spinal Tap turn up their amps to 11. But they also wanted lots and lots and lots of lights. Tours were forced to carry generators, big generators, mobile generators, for excessive power demand. So generator companies popped up. It required lots of crew, lots of stagehands. Uh, there were catering companies popping up and lots of new trucking companies. So this was okay for bands who could set out stadia, but they were trying to cram this stuff into regular arenas and even into theatres. And the promoters, quite rightly, began to squeak. And, of course, cowards to the man, they didn't squeak at the band's management they squeaked at us. So good business for us, you might think, but it became unsustainable. Uh, so in the early 80s, some very clever Texans at Shoko, uh, actually the brightest people I've ever met, thought about all this, and they decided that if you could efficiently change the colour of the beam, you could eliminate units. So in theory, 10 colours, you cut nine-tenths of the rig as long as the light levels on stage were high enough. And then the big moment, hot dang, they said, or something. Uh, if we can change the colour, we can also make a move and change the beam with iris and everything else. And these guys did it. They didn't just talk about it. They did it. So welcome to the world of 
very light. Uh, one of my ambitions at that stage was to introduce these lights into legitimate theatre, uh, especially the big repertoire houses where they would be perfect. The great irony of all this was that the moving lights, intelligent lights, whatever you want to call them, uh, they were used in great numbers, almost as many as what they were meant to be replacing. And this was the rock and roll psyche at work. They were instantly regarded as being effects lights. Of course, the dynamics, that's the, you know, the kinetic movement of the lights, is absolutely mesmerising. But over the years, it's led to this much overused sweep of beams which we see on our tellies every day. ESP had found Paul Ollett, someone who Brian Croft describes as a genius. Paul developed lighting control and dimmer systems, and the company had been the first to import the Parcan, a light from America, and were there at the start of using the Very Light, which could change colour and focus, and meant initially that the number of lights in a rig could be reduced. As the equipment evolved, ESP crews were keeping an increasingly large number of tours on the road. But as they dealt with the variety of problems that different venues threw up, the travel between shows and the continual lack of sleep whilst on the road, other logistical problems cropped up. As Nick Dornan remembers, whilst on tour with Blue Oyster Cult... tour manager who was an American um, he uh, paid paid for all the hotels as we went and uh, we were all gathered in the lobby waiting to uh, board the bus and suddenly there were armed police not letting us leave the building as um, as they refused to take American Express and this was because Franco was on his deathbed Madrid was uh, extremely tense at that time and we had to uh, get in touch with the American consul to come down and, and try and sort it out, which uh, which he did and uh, we were eventually allowed to leave the hotel and get on the, the tour bus. We always had a, a saying that uh, no sticky bun, no show and it was really just a light-hearted thing and that came to uh, fruition in Reims where we were we look forward to the um, crew meal because we expend a lot of energy and uh, it's nice to know we're, we're well fed and makes us feel good as well. And we were ushered into this uh, room for our crew meal. In this room, there were no tables or chairs. There were just two huge stainless steel bowls. One of them had uh, rather fat sausages in that looked as if they hadn't been cooked properly. And the other one had a massive pile of soggy chips, some wise heads 
told us to calm down and that we sought out the promoter and said there'd be no show unless we're fed properly. Went away in a panic. Five minutes later, he came back and said, come with me, come with me. And uh, we all loaded into a bus and we were taken to this country restaurant. It was magnificent. Had um, waiters with uh, bow ties hovering at our shoulders. Marshall, luckily, can speak French, otherwise I would have ended up with frogs, legs and snails. I had the most magnificent pea soup I've ever had in my life, and uh, what a wonderful meal that was. And uh, so the show went on. From dining in style to a life on the ocean waves, being on the road was never dull, as Robin Elias recalls. I remember on one occasion, after a Pink Floyd tour, Charlie Boxall and I, and a Dutch rigger called Two Foot Trebus, or why he was named that, we won't go into, decided to go on holiday and borrowed a yacht from one of the band. So Charlie claimed to have some sailing experience. I could hardly swim, and I'm not sure about Two Foot Trebus's um, nautical qualifications. Anyway, we found the boat. Uh, in Greece, and decided to have an early night, set sail in the morning. So we went out for a quick drink and found a bar which was giving away complimentary ouzo. Needless to say, we all got completely plastered. I woke up in hospital, having been beaten up with black eyes and broken ribs and what have you. Uh, I could hear outside my room Charlie answering the phones in the hospital. And when we both um, got back to the boat and the three of us, uh, to find two-foot trebus there, the three of us were discussing things. Apparently Charlie had woken up flat on his back on the lawn with his rucksack abandoned beside him containing thousands and thousands of pounds because he'd been paid in cash. And he, this lawn was inside a gated community with security. So if I remember correctly, he spent ages trying to talk his way out of the gated community, not knowing how he'd got in in the first place. Anyway, we had a good sailing holiday and that was that. And whatever the difficulties, the show always did go on. Although Marshall Bissett recalls when he feared it may not. During the Stones tour, they were playing the Abattoir in Paris, which was the old, uh, the old cobbled stone venue in Paris. And Mick Jagger had a fondness for Paris, and he decked out the backstage in the style of Paris in the turn of the century. They spent all kinds of money on it. Brian and wanted the, or Mick rather, wanted the auditorium decked out like they did for um, Madison Square Gardens with miles and miles and miles of these, uh, what you would call fairy lights, I suppose, or were like uh, festoon Christmas tree lights. And so Robin Murray and I, another crew member, were, were 
we piled all these American-made festoon lights into a into a three-ton truck and drove them to Paris. It was all incredibly last minute, and and we worked for days and days and days stringing these lights all over the auditorium, and we finally got the whole thing to work. On the night of the show, I wind up up on this rickety wooden tower running a fuller spot, and it's getting later and later and later um, before the show starts, and 10CC are the opening act. They've already played once, and then the next thing is I hear them starting the whole thing again. So the story on the headsets is that Keith is not around. He's missing in action, and so it's getting... It's getting tense, to say the least. The riot police are assembling outside the, the venue. The crowd are restless to the, the, the extreme. It's after 10 o'clock. There's no sign of the show starting. The follow spot tower that I'm standing on is moving back and forth as people are trying to climb up it. It's an angry, angry crowd. About 15 minutes later, we hear over the headsets, okay, stand by, stand by Q1. And apparently Keith has shown up quite unaware of any any problem, has just shown up uh, with a pal of his in a, a, a Paris taxi and wanders in backstage and said, well, all right, are we ready to start then? And uh, I'm anticipating tear gas and riots, and it got very, very close. That was probably the most dodgy encounter that uh, I had on the road. Jimmy Barnett, who we've heard from before, also has cause to remember Keith Richards after Jimmy had received a rave review for his lighting in the Guardian newspaper. So then just before the first London show, I was summoned to Keith's dressing room and he looked at me and he growled, you get another effing review like that and you're effing fired. And he meant it. He'd read the Guardian review and he just didn't like all that stuff. For him, it was all about the music. But luckily Mick, the principal boy, knew better. ESP Lighting's reputation for getting the job done and operating to a high professional standard and to budget grew. And their client list grew as well. The company did Nebworth from 1974 to 1976, when the Stones played there in one of the hottest English summers on record, as Brian recalls. Ian Knight and I were asked by Freddie Bannister to be the stage managers of the first Nebworth in 74. We started from scratch. I remember going around the field there. No one had ever done it. Working out where to put the stage, etc. You know, we had stepladders and long sticks, just the three of us. And we decided where to place the stage. Pretty obvious, actually. It was at the bottom, a perfect slope down from the house. Uh, I bet they have not moved more than 
20 metres one way or another from where we put the original. Three headline acts or, or two headlines and a support act had already played gig in Holland. And for timing reasons, Van Morrison had been bumped off the bill. So he arrived at Nebworth saying, make sure that doesn't happen again. We solemn promised he would play. Van did a storming set. Ian Knight encouraged him to do an encore. Well, you really don't do that if you're a support act. And the two headline act went ballistic. It was the Doobie Brothers and the Ormond Brothers. There was a bit of ego clashing going on there anyway as to which one was the bigger and should be headlining. Anyway, this tour manager came storming at me for the Ormond Brothers, so talking about the curfew. And I just said, listen, man, there is no curfew. So he had to calm down. And when the Ormond Brothers came on, they said, wow, we've no curfew. We're going to boogie all night. And after about two hours and 10 minutes, like drumming, they kind of stopped <laughs> through exhaustion. Of course, a couple of years later, I did the Stones at Nebworth. I, I committed a... F- terrible sin there actually kind of ruined the day for me i made a big mistake promising 10cc that they could use their own front of house sound desk and their own monitor desk and uh because they had a recording studio in manchester and also they were big you know they were selling a lot of records at that time So I said, yes, I consulted Keith Bradley, who was the crew chief, and um, he agreed. But what it meant was that in between 10cc finishing and the stones going on, Keith had to change, or his crew had to change the sex of the connectors at both ends with his little sex changer cable because the 10cc at non-industry standard. So in the heat of the moment on the day, it became pretty stressful and it took way too long and they dropped a few channels etc etc and they kept saying we're not ready we're not ready and the stones were and there's mick at the bottom of the stairs in doing his calisthenics whatever it's called when the stones are ready to go you've got to let them go i'd already sent them back to the dressing room once and as a stage manager you don't do that so in the end i just said we got to go and we did by this time in a huge gap and we and the, the, we dropped 15 degrees in temperature and also the monitors weren't great for the first song i guess but it was a great gig and everything but i carried that sort of guilt through the rest of my life and um i think i probably would have got hauled over the coals if it wasn't for the fact that the whole afterwards then two days later there was a huge furore about the discrepancy shall we call it about uh, between what uh, the promoter was saying, the crowd size, and what the police in their helicopters were declaring 
as a um, national emergency and a quarter of a million people and all that, because of that kind of political furore, I avoided a bollocking, I think. So Brian lived to tell the tale, which reminds me of a quick tale of my own. In 1976, when the Rolling Stones played at Earl's Court in London, which was to be my ESP swan song, they were preceded there by Elton John. Mick Jagger and Charlie Watts, now sadly no longer with us, came to Earl's Court for Elton's show, the idea being to tweak arrangements in consultation with a lighting designer and the sound crew for their shows, based on what they saw and heard. Having stood at the back of the hall, Charlie asked me if we could go up on stage. I had a pass, so didn't think that would be a problem. However, when we got backstage, we were stopped at the foot of the stairs, up to the stage, by a burly security man, asking where we thought we were going. I explained that we wanted to see the arena from the stage. He agreed that it would be all right for me to go up there, but not Charlie, as he didn't have a pass. I protested and asked him if he knew who Charlie was. He said he did, but still refused him access. I don't think he actually said it would be more than his job was worth to allow the Stones drummer onto the stage, but that was what he meant. Charlie was a real gent and took the refusal on the chin. Let's return now to the ESP story and find out what some of those that we've heard from in previous episodes are doing now. Here's Jimmy Barnett, who you may recall was the man whose lighting design Keith Richards seemed not to fully appreciate. Patrick Woodruff and I set up a company called WBA, Woodruff Barnett Associates, which lasted maybe a year or 18 months or so. And then I got married um, to a Kiwi. Immediately after we got married, we moved to Paris for a year, which was just wonderful. I loved living in Paris. 85 was Live Aid, which, you know, don't have to say any more about that, really. It was just amazing. It's 12 noon in London, 7 a.m. in Philadelphia. And around the world, it's time for Live Aid. 16 hours of live music in aid of famine relief in Africa. Wembley welcomes their royal highnesses, the Prince and Princess of Wales. Then shortly afterwards, I moved to Los Angeles to run Very Light Los Angeles. I'd been running the London end of Very Light. Then I moved to New Zealand, and within two years, I'd started doing an MBA at the university, which was great. I really enjoyed that. Um, And then various work through the 90s and the 2000s, ending up working for the New Zealand government, believe it or not, as a a bureaucrat. I wouldn't call it that. It was a really good organisation called New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, and and their mission is to grow and develop New Zealand exporters, and they do a great job. And the sort of last six months before I kind of retired, I guess, was coming back to London to be a trade diplomat for the New Zealand government, which I found really enjoyable. Great fun. But Jimmy's not been idle in his retirement and is now putting the finishing touches to a book about his life in rock and roll and subsequently. Roy Lamb, who'd been involved with ESP lighting right at the very beginning, is still working in the music business, though. Roy had literally driven off in a different direction from the lighting company with the late and much-loved Edwin Shirley, and they'd set up a transport company moving rock and roll lighting and sound equipment from venue to venue across the UK and Europe. (laughs) 
we actually became a limited company in January 1974, working with ESP through most, and, and I drove between 1974 and 1979, I was pretty much on the road with the trucking company 50 weeks a year. I did take breaks to go out with the Stones as the board operator and uh, and or electrician during the Stones tours, but then I kept uh, just on sabbatical from the company, but I basically concentrated on getting the company off the ground during that period. As I said, we pretty much had a monopoly on the, particularly on the American acts coming to Europe during that period. Eventually, trucking is actually still going now. A trucking company branched into staging. We started doing, providing the massive outdoor stages for, so it was the second string to the trucking company, providing um the big outdoor stages for Queen and the Stones and various bands when the, when the productions really got out of control in the 80s. Since 2006, I've been taking care of The Who alone. I've worked on lots and lots of different bands in, in different areas. I did production from the mid-80s onwards. I turned into a production manager. But I've been con- I'm trying to retire and I've been concentrating on working with The Who alone since 2006. In the next and final episode we'll hear from one crew member who built up a worldwide reputation as a designer and lit the London Olympic Games. Another who set up a highly successful restaurant business and somebody else who reached dizzy heights as a leading rigger. Backstage Pass is a podcast miniseries produced by Chris Smith and Christian Swain, edited by Jerry Danielson, and is a joint production with Pantheon Podcasts, the home for music lovers. We look forward to having you back on our journey. Until then, remember to keep the lights on. 